All right. Good morning and hello, everybody. I'm here with Jason Story and uh, Salim will be joining us in just a little bit. Talk about game design, game development and uh, anything else that's fun and interesting and pops up. So uh, first, I just want to say thanks for, to Jason for actually being here. <laughs> good stuff. Yeah, thanks for having, having me. you here. <laughs> and um, just, yeah, we wanted to check and make sure that our volume sounds good. So if anybody has any problems or anybody sounded too weird or too low or echoey or anything just let us know in chat and uh, we'll, we'll fix it early yep. on yeah it's good good seeing you again man we were talking a bit before the stream so i don't know how, how we just jump from that right into this but um i think today i mostly wanted to talk about game design stuff so i i maybe we'll hold off for slim on that in just a minute um and see what everybody else wants to talk about before we dive into like actual design related type things because I had a question for him that I think is going to be interesting, which is like, I want to ask him how I can convince my son to look into being a game designer. I think that Ooh. he would like it and be interested in it and see if he could, um, if he has some advice or anything to kind of push him that down that route or something. Um, but yeah, anyway, anything you want to talk about today, Jason, or just stuff yeah, that nothing, you want to... Yeah, particular comes to mind, but I'm a big fan of the topic, though. I, lo I love game design as a thing. I, I, it's probably... I, I, don't, I don't have much cause for it in my day-to-day, because -day, most of the stuff I work on is a lot more asynchronous API web stuff. Even in Unity, there's a lot of... Um, for example, actually, it's not quite the same thing, but for example, I'm working on a um, the scriptable pipeline stuff at the moment, so I can import uh, Adobe XD documents into a project and have it automatically turn into UI. Um, so I guess my point is, a lot of the stuff I do is a lot more enterprisey than it is game stuff. So a lot of the the game design stuff is more of a hobby. So any, any excuse to talk about game design and stuff, like I've tons of books on the topic and I love researching it. It's just it's just nothing I have to do for work. So yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I'm in the same kind of position because my game design stuff that I get to do is mostly just for fun and hobby too. Because as a game programmer, I never really get to do much of the designing myself. Like I can suggest things to the designers and maybe they'll say okay and do something somewhat similar. But it's very rare that I actually get to do any real design. It's mostly just kind of implementing the uh, the design that's already been decided on a couple months in advance or something, you know. Or, or working through that. There were a couple times though when I was working at um, Sony where I actually got to do some full-on design stuff. Um, where I, actually it was times where Salim was the lead designer on a project and just let me kind of go at it and have fun doing nice. some design in a small area. So like, here's a little confined area. Go ahead and design something fun there and do something. So that, that was a blast. Um, and and I always thought like that would be a really fun thing to do just kind of like full-time as a job but not as fun as programming <laughs> anyway yeah i'm exactly the same like I, the thing is I, I just get so in my own head with with design stuff i remember um when i first started trying to design my own levels and things i would put down just one tree and i'd be staring at the one tree going it's so conspicuous why would there just be a tree there and i'd be so in my own head i couldn't figure out so I ended up um, kind of, I used to hate level design because I always felt like I, I couldn't figure out the the reason why I was designing it. And then I watched a whole load of videos on level design and game design. And I kind of realized the whole time I was approaching it from the wrong direction. I was approaching design from um, sort of a like artistic direction, as silly as that sounds. And 
my mindset is more utilitarian. It's more programming and whatever else. And so when I realized, if you look at it from the perspective of objectives, what is the emotion I want the player to feel here? What is the goal this location services? Is, is, it, is it to like funnel them to a new location? Is it to highlight a particular viewpoint? Is it to add a, add a break in an ebb and flow of design? Suddenly it all clicked for me. And I realized there's actual rules and principles that can guide your level design from a more, I don't want to say academic approach, which may not be as artistic as other people might make stuff. But again, if from a, from a design perspective, there's a lot of planning that goes into that. So I, I can leave the art and design to people who are better than me at that stuff to design the actual models and things, but I can focus on structuring a level such that it actually, it serves technical purposes. And then all of a sudden, so much easier. I know why certain rooms are certain heights. I know how to place lights, how to do things. And all of it just came so much easier to me after that. Oh. That's interesting. So do, when you do your level design, do you like to do a lot of gray box type level design then and then have artists come in over to the top of it and make it pretty? Yeah, 100%. I, I now realize that rooms are, are normally there to serve some some sort of structural purpose. So now I, I will always block out. I, I want I want to basically have, have sight lines set up. I want to have heights of things set correct. Um, like window positions are a big one. Light is such a powerful tool for design, for, for where do you place a window, what kind of sight lines it causes. Things like, um, like one of the best ways to create collectibles, as, as silly as it sounds, is if you go through a room, um, you your, your vision will always be forward. So imagine you walk through a door, you're looking ahead at you. If you want to place an interesting collectible in that room, you want to place it somewhere where your sight line won't hit it unless you're actively engaged in searching. And the best place to do that is behind you. So when you come into a room, if you place something above you, kind of up to the right or up to the left, then they'll have an aha moment when they walk in, they look around, they rotate 180 and they go, there it is, right? So it's designing rooms such that um, you, you have this sort of structured experience of how they'll go through the area. And so, yeah, I'm, I very much, I think you can get like 90% of the way there with just blocking out the the kind of the navigated path. Yeah, I think that that's a really good strategy to use too. It's what a lot of just studios in general do too kind of design out the area long before the artists um you know actually implement I mean, they're usually be designed with some concept in mind but uh, going through and just blocking out the the whole design of the area to make it playable and fun so, yeah, and that's, the, that's the, the one thing i i like to do too uh, but i'm terrible at making it look pretty afterward <laughs> yeah well I, I don't even try that i i 100 just hand over levels and let someone else do that i, I would say if you're if you're like me and struggling with the mechanics of level design the best resource I ever saw is a video from a guy uh, called Peter Fields. He was one of the level designers on uh, The Last of Us. And he has a video. So he, he moved, he starts working for Dreams. So you know Dreams, that um, PlayStation game? The one that lets you build levels and that kind of thing? Yeah, um, I'm sorry, I'm checking him out right now. <laughs> yeah, his, he, he, okay. has a couple, he has a couple of really great videos that like talk you through the the sort of the mindset of structuring a level, like right the way through giving your players an objective, um, sort of blocking sight lines to make rooms more interesting. It goes through the whole process of how do you design a space that's engaging. He has this particular part that I love, which highlights the key and door problem that people get wrong all of the time. And if you, if you see that and you see what I mean, um, that's often the biggest problem with sort of your, your thrown together basic games is at the end of the day, a lot of problems and puzzles boil down to i have a key i have a door key has to open door it may not actually be a key it'll be some macguffin you pick up that gets a door but something that he really highlighted 
is a lot of people make the mistake of having the key accessible before you see the door. So, you, so you'll see this in some sort of horror games a lot where people open a load of cupboards, they'll get a key and they're now looking for a door. That's not a puzzle anymore. That's just, you know, I found a key. I'm not going to look around till I find the door. The, the opposing side of it is you should structure a puzzle such that you see a problem and then have to go on a hunt for a solution. And so depending on how you structure your level, you can ensure that they, they hit a certain barrier and then have to find a way around. Uh, the example he uses is there's like a giant chasm that you can't cross. But above you, there's pipes that go across the chasm. You can look up and go, okay, I, I can see the pipes solve my problem. How do I get to the pipes so I can go across them? All of a sudden, that's now an engaging problem. It's not, I have key, now find door, you know? So it's really yeah. interesting. It really changed the way I look at how all of these things interconnect. Yeah, that sounds like a good, that was in one video you said? You got you got a lot of this from? Yeah, literally, he's got one really yeah. good video. He's um, It's on his YouTube channel, and I think he's also... Um, I think, yeah, I've, I've seen, he, he's redone it twice. He gave a presentation, then he redid the video. It's just uh, Peter Fields level design. I'm sure you'll, you'll see it. He kind of walked through this dream space where he guides you through it. He starts out looking at a lighthouse out a window and that sort of guides you through the level design. Interesting. Yeah, I can, I can, I think I have the video up here. Interesting. I'll have to check this thing out later. May I, I'll, I'll drop it in a chat too, so everybody can check. Yeah, it out cool. Curious. I think that's the one that I found. It looks like he's looking at a lighthouse through a window right there. So yeah, yeah that's, that's, the that's probably it. There's there's other resources too. There's a really really good level design document. Well, it's actually more of a game. Yeah, it kind of covers level and a few other things. That's like it's somewhere on Twitter. I can't even remember where it is, but it's it's like hundreds of pages that goes through blocking and and sort of setting up your standardized measurements of different heights of elements and how to use points of interest for for kind of different reasons um yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of technical stuff in level design and and i can see how it might scare some people but to me it just felt like an actual rule book to explain the thing that i had no artistic sort of instinct for you know oh yeah and i think it makes it easier right like if you get a little set of rules or like kind of guides like just steps that you can follow in a little bit of a process. It makes it easier to go through and, and actually do it and not just get stuck there in limbo going like, what the hell do I do next? You know, which is usually what happens to me. So a good set of steps would be, would be useful. That's like the one area that I really want to focus on now and get better at is just the, uh, the design side of things that so I have to do a lot of design work day to day. And like, yeah, it's, <laughs> I don't feel like I, I'm I, great. I a basic level. One, one that a lot of people don't, that kind of take for granted is the whole concept of affordances. So if you're looking for like a really quick win as to why some games people intuitively know which doors to open and which don't or which direct, like if you look down a corridor, sometimes people just know the right path. Again, Last of Us is a great example where it's an open area, but you kind of know the right direction all of the time where you're supposed to be going. And so they use a lot of really cool tricks for that. And the, the big one is affordances, which is kind of highlightable sections that are... Um, it's sort of the, the example that's often given is doors. If you see a door handle, you don't know whether that's going to be a door handle that pulls out or pushes in. But if you see a bar, one of those press bars at, across the room, you can say that is both a door and the door that opens outwards, right? All, all that information is given to you in that affordance of the bar. And in video games, if that's a highlighted item, you can very quickly say that's the door I'm supposed to go through because I can see what it does and how it works. Um, and in contrast, you can have the negative affordances, which would be if you've got a bunch of doors and you want to telegraph to the player which one to go through, you could put bars and things over the over one of the doors, or you could block it with some sort of furniture or the other kind of usual tricks, 
which is sort of an indicator that this is not an openable door. And so even across a room, if you've got 10 doors, you can kind of tell your audience, this is the one to go through because the other ones have negative affordances and this one has positive affordances, you know? Yeah, no, that's, that's a great example because I mean, it's something that we all do and see and probably don't even realize when you start putting those things there. Uh, this, this is all good stuff, man. There's a lot of questions popping up in chat too. Yeah, I'll try again. I, I will state this isn't like I don't do this for a living. Not not this particular level design stuff. This is just something I enjoy and have researched a lot. So I'll try my best, but I'll be probably directing you to other resources. I wanted to. Yeah, I, I thought that this is an interesting one. Do you ha- need to be a gamer to understand game design? I think so. Yeah, I would assume. I don't know. So. I don't know um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to use the thing that you're that you're really working on and understanding, like. Maybe yeah, I don't think you could Maybe be a mechanic that doesn't drive cars. And... <laughs> yeah, I, I think, yeah, I guess you don't need to have a background in gaming. But, I mean, if you're going to get into the process, you really have to get into the head of someone who's solving those puzzles. Because there's a whole, there's a whole kind of hierarchy of types of games and what their, what their intent is um, and how people engage with these kinds of puzzles. So you'd, you'd certainly have to be familiar with at least a couple of examples of the kinds of um, problems people are going to face. So yeah, I, I would say maybe not to and start. I would say the but more that you play, the better. Yeah, yeah, I definitely, I definitely think over, over time um, you'll you'll get a better hand. I, like I do find it makes it easier. Like there's a lot of stuff I intuitively know because I've seen it in other games, and having that reference point is really good. So as a general rule, yeah, the more games you play, the better you'll be at this stuff. Which is why I think I picked a lot of it up so easily is because I used I used to play games and take notes. Right, I used to literally play Portal, have a pad of paper, and write down how how far is that wall. Why is that post sign post there? What what do I what do I assume I have to do in this room? Why did they tell me this? And it's like all of a sudden, for example, you look at those windows at the top in in the rooms in Portal, and you're like, why do they have these windows that are like some secret offices? And from a from a game design perspective, you're kind of going, oh well, they're, they're mysterious and creepy. But from a level design perspective, they're they're an excuse for where the light comes from naturally in each room, because otherwise, where would the, where would the light source be? And it's like, oh okay, they're using it as the natural light source. And so there's lots of little stuff that you start to pick up once you start like clinically paying attention to why they structured certain things. Yeah. Wow. That's <laughs> that's interesting that you actually take notes while you're playing the games too. About all those things. That's, that's yeah, it's yeah, I, hardcore. I find it fun. <laughs> yeah, like I, I I used to think it was like obviously I still play games sometimes just for fun, but I do yeah. I find there's a whole different level to be to kind of Especially if you play games you used to play as a kid. Like I find it really funny going mm. back to playing Banjo Kazooie and whatever. I have my N sixty four over here, and looking at why why do certain things do I still remember fifteen twenty years later when other things I don't. And so trying to figure out why certain spaces clicked with you, and a lot of it is like you can start to really tell once you start looking through all of the little details. Yeah, I know it's weird when you go back through old stuff. Like, I get the same. Like there will be one little feature, one little piece that sticks out that I remember, and then I will have forgotten most of the rest of it and just how how much I don't like it anymore. <laughs> oh man, let's see. So I, I want to see what other questions we got in here because there there are a lot of things popping up. There's, not, there's a fun one for you. you. You do a lot of prototyping stuff, so I'm curious. Uh, which is more difficult, two D two D games or three D games? Oh. Um, 3D. Oh, 2D multiplayer or normal 3D? That depends. I would be multiplayer because local multiplayer, multiplayer is like this. 
Yeah, multiplayer is almost like cheating. You're baking in a problem into that thing. I would say, right. let's just leave it Unless 2D it's versus 3D. If it was yeah, 2D yeah. local multiplayer versus 3D, I would say the 2D local multiplayer might be easier. Um, just because the 3D adds in a lot of extra stuff. Like, like with with 3D, you get all, all the rendering and you get the positional stuff. It just it gets a lot more complicated, and I find that the 3D games tend to get much more complicated. But to, yeah, mm. I don't know. It, it's it, it, it varies a lot. <laughs> it depends on the game. I would say though, from a from a getting started perspective, it can be often easier for programmers to start in 3D because you don't have to rely on finding sprites and doing the art and stuff, which you kind of need for That's a 2D true. game. But but in a 3D game, you can just slap some boxes on it, drop some rigid bodies, and you can get started immediately. Yeah, definitely. If you don't have a set of art, then doing a 2D game is kind of a pain because you actually need things to really match up well and and look good together. And it's a lot harder to do that with random 2D stuff that you find than it is with um, the art art on the asset store. And so if you can find plenty of things that match and, and build things, if yeah, so I, I would not build a 2D game unless you have the art or have somebody who can make the art available. <laughs> yeah. But then you can always just buy that stuff too. You can hire people. Yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an asset store addict myself. I, I, I can't. I can't even tell how much I've probably spent on the asset store. Oh, I'm sure it's yeah, a ton. <laughs> but I mean, even if you need custom stuff, like you can get custom 2D art for characters for relatively cheap. You get onto like Fiverr or Upwork or something, and you can find you know somebody that can make you a full set that matches your theme for maybe a couple hundred bucks at most. Um, so. Yeah, I wouldn't let it be a stop. Oh, yeah, and then somebody's mentioning Kenny. It's interesting. I actually recorded a video on this, um, on where to get game art assets. It's getting edited mm. now, I think. Um, or I, I, I remember. It's recorded, at least. Um, and Kenny NL is one, or Kenny.NL is one of the ones that I mentioned in there. That somebody uh, mentioned. So he's got a ton of free stuff up there, too, if you're doing uh, 2D and 3D yeah. stuff. I, I don't think I don't think I know a single person who does game stuff who doesn't have a folder of Kenny assets. Like it's just everybody has them. It's kind of like the Incompetech music, right? There's just like you, you, everybody probably has this somewhere on their machine. Yeah, it's just so so big and <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah, I want to pop this next one. So when you're working on multiple mechanics, is it better to prototype them separately or together? Um, I was curious. What do you think of this? Like, if you're working on multiple mechanics, mm. I think you're doing. You should be doing them unless they really tie together and and they're interdependent. You should be doing them one at a time, totally separately, and they shouldn't yeah. be locked. Like, they should be relatively independent unless they really need to rely on each other. Like, one is part of the other or dependent on the other one. Yeah, that's what I'd, I'd say too. Because especially from from a programming and getting work done perspective, um, you should really like have an objective, make it work, functionally test it, and then make sure that that feature complete is sort of done, and then check how well it integrates with the system. So it, they're almost like competing goals. As a, as a designer and programmer, you, you want to be working on a single thing and finishing a loop. But as a game designer, you want to see how well it engages with the other systems. And from sort of systemic thinking, you should be trying to find ways to engage one system to work with the other. But um, but that should come afterwards, right? So it should be make it make it first, as Jason was saying. Finish it, see how well it works with the other systems. Then maybe do some refactoring to make it engage more with the other systems, and then continue the loop. 
But yeah, I would, I'd almost always pick one thing, finish the one thing, move to the next thing. Yeah. Same, same here. Unless this is like at a point where you're so early on, you're just trying out random stuff to see what you actually want to build and you're going to throw it all away later. Like if you're at like that early of a just like prototype and experimenting stage, then it doesn't, uh, I would say go ahead and do them together and see how they work together. But other than that, yeah, in a real project, generally don't hit that stuff sequentially. But also keep in mind prototype just means like prototype. Don't, don't sort of go and spend three months polishing an inventory system with like all of the art and assets and icons and stuff and then completely forget the rest of your game. That's, that's not what we mean by prototype. It should work functionally and then that's it. And then move on to other stuff. And, and make sure that then then you check the work to the rest of the game. But if you're if you're kind of like locking yourself in a box to work on one thing, then you could fall into the trap that I do a lot myself, which is I feel like I'm building mini assets for the asset store. It's kind of like I forget that that I'm sitting down to make a project, not to make individual little systems. And you can get really hung up on could I make this the best system ever and start adding features that your game doesn't need what would be nice to have in this system. And that's just ridiculous. You shouldn't be wasting your time adding features that you don't actually need for the project you're doing. Oh, I 100% agree. And and I've had that same problem in the past too. But yeah, now I feel like the, the best way to do it is to get the system working, get it, like meet the minimal requirements so that it does all of the key things that it needs to do, um, not the fancy, pretty, flashy things that it needs to do. And then make sure that it integrates because in that integration process, you may often run into problems where you need to re- restructure or refactor things a bit. And if you've gone through a whole bunch of work, you're just making it a lot harder to do that. And you're going to make it so that you're, you're a lot more likely to see people go in and just make messes out of things while they try to get these two systems now that, that they didn't integrate early on to actually integrate and work together. I've seen it happen. And not not quite to mention, other systems get thrown out, or you change your mind, or you don't need them. And sometimes you're like, "Oh, I, I spend." If you spend two weeks on a system and it gets thrown out, no big deal. If you spend like two months working on a system and it gets thrown out, that's a big deal. So it yeah, like, many times, many many times yeah. in the past. <laughs> yeah, and it sucks. Right? Mm-hmm. That's why. Yeah, I try to try not to do that polish setup at all. In, in fact, a good example is when I, when I do UI stuff. Um, I always do the UI show and hide functions as just turn off and turn on or canvas group zero, canvas group one, one or the other. Um, I won't bother animating it at all. But I will always, when I end up finishing a project, use Dootween to animate animate my UI. What I do is I'll just do the basic turn on, turn off to start with and then use like a strategy pattern later to extract out the like simple version and then later on put in an animated version which does all the fancy animations. And if I need to change that later, I can have different strategies to solve that problem. But the point is I won't start with animations because I know myself. And if I start animating the panels to swipe out and do different, like if I have a list of items and I want to stagger them with a cool animation, I'll spend like a week just like tweaking this and adding bounces and adding ease curves. And it's like, it's such a waste of my time. So I save oh, that you, for when I need a break. up not using it. Right? And then they go, we don't exactly. actually want a list view. You know, list view doesn't work. <laughs> oh God. Yeah, and and also yeah, that's 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 definitely not a exaggeration either. I have literally worked on projects where I've been I've been sent away to make a system, and I come back and go, here's the system. And in the time it took me to make it, they're like, oh, we changed our mind. We're not going to have uh, voiceover on this at all, so we don't need that subtitle system you made. It's like, cool. I'll just put this in the bin. Will I? Just fine. <laughs> I've yeah, I've done that many times in corporate and game projects. Right? <laughs> We're working on something and. 
Decision was made somewhere else. Nobody mentioned it. <laughs> ah, crap. Or you just get something done and it's in there for like a week or two and they're like, yeah, we're going to do a different thing now. Let's change it again. Oh, it's a, yeah, definitely a common thing. Here's where we're going to get the yeah. game working and get it done first and then, then polish it up. Let's see. What else we got here for questions? Mm. You said that the programming part was the hardest. What's a good way, the best way to get good at game programming? I don't know. For me, it's like practicing and showing your stuff and getting feedback on your actual work. Like the, the best thing that you, I think you can do is give your actual code to somebody and get feedback. Like good code reviews where people go through and tell you exactly how they would improve and restructure things. Um, that's been like the best thing for me to make my game programming and just programming get easier for me and get better at it is just going through and like saying, hey, to a bunch of different friends, like, here's this. Um, I'm having a little problem with this. How would you do this? And don't be afraid to tell me that you would throw it all away and rebuild it a different way. And if so, how would you do that? <laughs> like, like, I want to do this the right yeah. way. Like, you know, just, and, and that has made the biggest difference for me. Um, but I don't know. Mm. Yeah, I, I don't know like, at, at different levels where, where that really... Um, where that really hits though you got any advice on the best way to get good at programming yeah i i would say for me personally the the problem i hear a lot is i get a lot of people who ask me do you have links to big enterprise projects that i can look through that give me all the right answers for how i should do this and the answer is no i can't because if it's a big project that's normally secret or it's somebody's or they're not or it's under nda or you and even if i did give you a full big project and i've done this i've i've like I've um, decompiled games I play and go, oh, let's have a look at what they do, and like it's a huge system full of thousands of lines. Like it, it doesn't, it doesn't teach you the things you think it will because it's, it's like you need to learn at a systemic level how things are done. So I find that's not as useful as people think it is. What I prefer instead is to be critical of my own code. And so this may sound like an odd statement, but use your own code. A lot of people write code and then just sort of move on. Think about your own code as if it was code you're consuming from somebody else, like it's an API or whatever. So ask yourself that when I when I install, you know, JSON.net or whenever, whenever I use some other third-party asset or library, do I like using it? Am I like, ooh, I like this is well designed. This is easy to work with. I enjoy it. And ask yourself why that's the case. So I find the best advice is when I look at code, I ask myself, am I enjoying using my own code? Is it a pain to work with? And if, if is other code that I've used easier to work with than mine? And if so, why? And then I sort of try to steal ideas. So I don't think you need some some big example projects and things. You're not you're not going to find the value there. But what you will is just by asking yourself, is your code the best code that you enjoy working with? And if not, can you make it the best code? You know? Yeah, I think that makes sense. It's interesting you mentioned like seeing big projects too, because I remember seeing like multiple times when I was much younger getting access to uh, game source code. And being all excited, like, oh, I got the source for this game. And then it opened it up, like, I have no idea what any of this What means. am I even looking at? Yeah. <laughs> like, ah, well, this wasn't nearly as cool. Like, spent a week downloading the source over my modem or whatever, you know? And, like, I, I don't understand any of it, and I can't even build it. So, yeah, it was uh, definitely eye-opening. That, like, And I've seen a lot of big projects like that. Like, you open it up, and it may take weeks to really fully understand what's going on there. Not all of them. Obviously, there are some that 
that are a bit easier to get into. But most of the time, yeah, that's not a great, great option. <laughs> I do yeah, like the they- uh, Clean Code series, though, by the way. I was going to mention, like, going through reading that book, the Clean Code book. I, I think you have that back there, right? That was very, very helpful for me, too, in getting better at code. Like, I think of all of the books that I read, that one probably had the biggest, like, really quick impact. Like, I read it in a week. And I felt like in that week, I felt like I was better at programming. It's like, Same. Hey, I literally feel better after the, after this. Like, I feel like I have extra powers at programming, um, even though it was all like I, Java, Java, right? If I remember right in that book. Uh, I think it's Java, unless it's a new edition. Yeah, it's, it's Java. Yeah. 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 So e- even though the language didn't really apply, it, it actually made it a little bit easier because it's kind of able to go faster, faster through it. Cause I was like, I don't really know this Java stuff, but I, I can still get the pattern from it and, and read it and understand it. So I don't know. That, that was, it, yeah. It's funny. It's funny you said that about the, like, literally you felt better out me too. Like I remember reading that and within like a few chapters, I'm like, Oh, I've been thinking about code wrong. I've been thinking of it like some <laughs> clinical operations to get things done. And once I read this, it's like, it's it's a language. It, it like it has all of the things the language has. It's meant to it's meant to read and flow, and you can write it in a way that's you know really clean and easy to work with. And it's like it, just, it doesn't have to look cool, right? It used to be before this. I was like, oh, every time I get to use one of the null coalescing operators, I'm a badass. I have these really cool programming lines. But then you read this book, and you're like, I'm completely thinking about this wrong. It's not about making this really obscure, cool looking code. It's about practically writing code that's easy to work with and maintain. Completely changed my perspective. Oh yeah, yeah, it was definitely worth reading. So I I recommend it to everybody. Let's jump on to um, this one, which popped up, um, I think in our talk about just separating out systems and and building systems independently, um, relying on Unity events to separate them. I actually like this um, using Unity events as um, through scriptable objects, though. So using global Unity events through scriptable objects to do this, it works pretty well. It's really simple to set up and pretty extensible. I wouldn't use Unity events where objects are like tightly coupled without going mm-hmm. through a scriptable object type uh, game event system. Uh, there's a bunch of videos on. It. I think I actually released a video on that too recently. Either that or I recorded one on that, on how to do game. Actually, I think that, that one's getting edited right now, too. On how to do game events through Unity events. But there's a great um, blog post on it, too. Let me just post that in here. Uh, yeah, I, I like doing that, too. And I think that this, the really big asterisk to put on this is it says to separate your systems. So any event system. So Unity events is just one of many options, right? You can. There's like tons of ways to do events from, from the simplistic version of a... Um, sort of observer pattern all the way up to the more complex solutions. Um, But keep in mind that the idea, the point of a system, the point of events is to connect disparate systems where they shouldn't really need to know about each other. But if you're doing something like a health UI and a health bar, I usually consider health as something that's so tightly coupled. I personally don't use events there. I might use events to hook the health system up to some other third party system or some like scoreboarding or whatever. Really depends. But I guess my point is, if you've got two things which are like literally together, working together, the events are adding extra weight to that. It's like, I I just find it's, there's other solutions, like specifically in the case of a health UI and a health bar, you can use something like um, a kind of protected function that fires an event call, and you can then hook into that with extending glasses. You know, I, don't, I won't get into details, but yeah, the, the point is... Um, 
use events to connect things that, that are like across a boundary. But if stuff is really tightly coupled, think about it. It's kind of like mailing yourself a to-do list, right? It's pointless. You don't, you don't use a large system like an event system and all of the costs that incurs to talk to something that you can actually connect to yourself. Right. And that makes it, that's the problem that I think a lot of people run into when they start using events, right? They, they start putting them everywhere and then they start replacing just direct references to things that they would have a reference to with an event call, thinking that they're, they're adding something they're really just making it more complex. All right. I'm going to pop in Salim now. Here to talk about um, all kinds of cool stuff and tell us about every video game. How's it going, man? We got you in here. Hello. Hey, there hey, you are. Sorry, hang on. I got some craziness happening in my speakers here. All good. I'll pop up another question while you're setting it up. What are your thoughts on using singletons in Unity? What alternate solutions do you use? Um, my thoughts are they don't bother me nearly as much as they used to, but um, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Like, yeah, it's, 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 I just think I'm of a, like a static global object in my game that's never going away, and it's a like getting around it for the theoretical benefit that that you get, like the same benefit that you get in a web development or an enterprise world, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So I still lightly use singletons um, in almost all of my Unity projects. So I don't know that I have an alternative solution that I would recommend. But I don't. Yeah. I would say I don't. Don't overuse them. Where there are a bunch of singletons that are linking together. I, I don't. I don't want to have them calling into each other. I guess. I, I would say that one of the biggest mistakes I made when I first started using Unity, which I, by the way, I only now realize has been like six years, um, which is very funny because I, I I saw something an article I wrote six years ago for a, a post mortem on a project. I'm like, damn, I didn't realize I was using Unity that long. But um, I spent the first two years fighting unity thinking it's like the game design principles that i see people doing are the wrong ones that they're idiots they're not doing it the right way the way it's in the programming books and i spent years fighting that system until i realized i'm the one who's thinking about this wrong that games are fundamentally different they're they're loop driven they're not event driven their objectives are different they're more about performance than they are about sustainable architecture in certain cases because in, in a traditional sense, a game is usually one code base that's worked on for X number of years and then mostly dropped, if not slightly appended to, unlike enterprise software, which is constantly changing and adding and feature-driven. So once I realized the actual goals and objectives of the software is vastly different depending on what you're doing, the question of are singletons bad has suddenly changed for me because it became a, you almost never want to use it in enterprise, but there's actually a lot of valuable cases for games. Um, I do still think it's overused, but I guess the point is, if you start thinking about the differences between the kinds of software you're making at work versus the software you're making for games, you might realize that some of those rules and practices, they have a reason they exist. So try not to like tar everything with the one brush. Ask yourself practically what it's for and what it does, right? Don't just presume to go with a company line that you heard because you happen to be in a different industry. Yeah, I think that's... I think you you stated it perfect. <laughs> oh. All right, you working everything better now, Salim? Oh yeah. Cool. Yeah, we were just talking about game design and development and other stuff, and going through questions. Now I don't know if people have some game design questions they wanted to ask. Um, 
got like an hour left in here. How do you how do you uh, respond to in the chat here? Uh, you just talk. Uh, or or type. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if you can type into that chat. Yeah, you'd have to open it in the uh, in in YouTube. I think I don't think there's a way on the okay. other chat. Oh, only I have access to that one, huh? So yeah, somebody had asked if there was any value to the certified developer certificate. Um, I, I assume so. I don't know. I, I actually got to work a little bit on one of these, so I am biased to say yes. But um, I, I've seen people, uh, like for me, it's not like going to push anybody over the edge. Like I'm not going to say that, that you're qualified, but I have definitely met people who, asked about that and were were curious about it and valued it um like, like some people value certificates i think it's more of the non-technical people on the team that are going to value certificates and stuff and the the hr type departments but um it, it does tell you whether or not you know the stuff though so it's definitely a good way to find out if you know if you know your stuff and if there's something missing um what that stuff is so you can study on it. i don't know if they give you back the stuff that you failed though it, it, assuming that they do that then yeah, that's another great benefit. Uh, I would say, if if I'm being honest, if if you've got a CV that's very light, in other words, you haven't worked on many things or anything, um, then realistically, nobody has a way of of figuring out how good you are. Like you can make a, a millions personal projects, and they have no indication of your ability, and if you know the basics. So if you if you don't have some practical examples, 100% go for the test. If you're a student or you're just finishing college and you're trying to bolster your CV. Take the certification. It's quite cheap to do. Well, for, for the value it'll give you, it's quite cheap. Um, and then in comparison, if you've been working on projects for six years and you've got projects you can link to and things you can talk about, less valuable then. But that's just my opinion. Yeah, I think that that's, that's probably dead on. Like If you don't have a lot of already good experience on there, then it's something that you can add that, that adds some value and set you aside. Cool. So what else we got for questions? Was there something that you wanted to respond to specifically, Salim? Oh, no, as people were saying hello. So, oh, oh. I didn't want to interrupt and scream <laughs> hello while you guys were talking. Hey, <laughs> you're supposed to jump to up and down and start dancing, screaming hello. <laughs> uh, Salim dance. No, I can do a little shimmy. That's about it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so, I had a question for you, Salim. Uh, Hold on. Let me. Um, let these me... are personal. We, we say we keep personal questions out of it. Yeah, <laughs> this is this this one won't be too personal. Um, so yes, I like you, Jason. It's, it's we get. <laughs> thank you, thank you so much. Um, I, I was thinking I should convince Christopher to be a game designer. Any advice on how I should do that? For uh, everybody watching that's not doesn't know, that's my eighteen-year-old son that Salim has known and been attacked by many times as a toddler. <laughs> um. Well, convinces. I'm. I'm not sure. Like, I guess, like, I want to. In you want to show him the oh. merits or expose him to it and see if he if he takes yes. it on. See if he's interested in it. I don't think he's super interested in the programming side of stuff. Yeah. Um. He's very interested in video games and doing something related. So I think like he might really like the game design side of stuff and just like, is there something you would recommend uh, like maybe spur on the interest, even like a documentary or something about game design that like might get him interested or I don't know anything that's not a book because he won't read it. Um, I mean, ultimately just, uh, 
um, I don't know, just sit down with him and, and see what, I mean, what, what types of games does he like? I forget. Like I, he plays, uh, like four- plays a lot of rust right now. Yeah. Okay. Um, he likes a lot of those open world type games, but he plays, he tries out a lot of stuff as it comes out. He just always jumps back to rust right after. Uh, I mean, ask him if he, uh, I mean, just ask him if he has an idea for a game, uh, maybe have him do like a quick summary or, or, you know, just come with a pitch format and just have him pitch a game. You guys just like go back and forth, grab a whiteboard. It depends on how he learns, but, um, or just how he likes to interact and when it comes to that type of stuff, I'm not sure how much he's done, like open brainstorming or stuff is going through schools, doing projects and stuff like that. But, um, I mean, even like him and Joe, like get them together in a room. Joe does does the programming, so he can kind of work with his brother. That can take he can take that side of it off of them, um, and they could just go back and forth on some ideas. Um, just choose a game type or something like that. If it's just open world, then just choose a world, a theme, and then just have some fun with it. Um, and that way, you'll be able to see if he's really like. From that point, you know, if he talks about art a lot, then maybe he actually is interested in maybe some art, artistic stuff, which I don't think that's generally true with him. Um, but if he talks about like a systems side stuff, like talking about the the lower level mechanics or how this should work, or like then maybe he is a person who's more interested in the technical side of stuff. But if he's really like into the story or or the players feel or stuff like that, then maybe he's more of a content person. Um, or he could just he wants to talk about all of it, um, and then you just kind of see where it goes from there. But I think ultimately, if you can, um, you know, I guess broadly approach it, just kind of have an open open deal, um, and then eventually it'll become more focused. Um, you can see if he's interested at all. Um, I mean, I had the same problem with my kids. Uh, I genuinely like hoped that they would get into design. I used to do like weekends where we would do uh, I think it's code.org. Um, mm-hmm. we would just get together, even my wife, we'd all sit and we would just go through, um, the different exercises on there together, you know, set up a bunch of laptops and all that stuff. And we'd sit together and then I would just talk through types of things. And I was just seeing if, when it was over, if they would ask me about it. Um, and for a couple of weeks, my, my sister, my daughter would bring it up. Um, uh, my son, not so much. He just wasn't into it. Um. And so, you know, after trying it a couple times, um, even like, you know, obviously all the different types of games that I'm interested in playing, I'd always try to find a game and get get a copy with him, try to play with him, stuff like that. And then eventually, um, you know, he just kind of fell off in that regard. So so I've learned that he just isn't into into that type of stuff. Um, you know, however, he is into video editing. So there is some mm-hmm. some some side of 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 the industry where that where he might eventually get into that type of stuff and like i said last week my daughter's wants to be a music composer for video games um at least part of her does so that exposure helped in some way it like showed me what they are interested in um yeah i do wish it would would have been game design i mean growing up i had another stuff but i've exposed them you know they've got unity installs i've even offered unreal installs and stuff like that i you know i told him, Hey, you can go through Jason's course, like all this stuff. Um, but there's just, it just kind of hit the wall and, and slid off. So I don't know. I would just put him in a room or, you know, take him out for some beers. Oh wait, he's too. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, it's interesting. You said your, your son's into the video editing too. Cause that's what Christopher's doing now. He's 
very much oh. gotten into video editing and clip editing and stuff. Is, so. is he doing deep fakes of you? Uh... Um, I think right now he's just doing like video game, video game highlight type stuff. So. Um, but yeah, I mean that that also could be pretty cool stuff. Um, it could be, yeah. There. Um, yeah, if, especially was, if you get was... into the um, videocopilot.net stuff. I did a lot of uh, video editing myself back in the day. I really got into VFX and adding all of the like lightsabers to my friends' videos and that kind of thing. So there's, oh, yeah. there's yeah, a lot of fun cool. to be had there, yeah. Uh, can you guys hear me better now? Uh, yeah, you're a bit better now. I yeah. turned you up on my end, too. All right, oh, just as a side note, on that question, too, uh, one thing that I find personally helped me is um, it can be a bit daunting jumping into game development, especially if you're looking at like game engines and all of the the empty void of possibility. Um, what I found is a great introduction is level design. So my for me, it was uh, Tony Hawk's. There was the, the level creators where you can go in and make your own skate parks. All of a oh, sudden, yeah. mechanics are done for you and you can just start building things. And then even yeah. Minecraft's a great example too. And what you can do is depending on how you engage with it, some people will do it artistically. Other people will do it mechanically to make a better level. And so that's a great way to gauge where their mind's at because if they start liking the mechanical side of it and the technical how to make a really engaging combo for whatever level or something, you could sort of pivot them in the direction of the Portal 2 level maker where you can start making actual puzzles. But if it's more the other way, you could give them something like Dreams where you can start composing pre-existing blocks to make artistic experiences. And so level design is a great like gap to get you started of what part of this big process do you enjoy so you don't have to like from ground up build your own character controller or something yeah i mean it you know that makes me think of you know a good example of of how i realized i really like main games is just like dnd you know making a campaign in dnd you know getting a graph paper making a dungeon uh coming up with all the different story points here all the different fights encounters like it's a it, it was for me like a good way to get exposed to a kind of a broad uh, way of making a game, but I could take it, you know, bit by bit. And you could tell going through a campaign of mine, what I really liked doing um, versus what I just kind of let the books and the rules um, follow, which really wasn't much. But um, but uh, that could also be another good place. I and mean, level design is like, that's a really good point. It, it definitely like sitting down with some blocks, putting some stuff together. Oh, this could happen here. I could trigger this here. And when you start talking about what, what you trigger, then maybe a part of him that he doesn't realize is there. Go, oh man, I want to figure out how I trigger this stuff, um, and then that you know segues into the more technical side of it. And maybe introduce him to basic scripting, coding, stuff like that. I'm trying to fix the mic. Sorry, I don't know. What's All good. On. There was another question that I thought was perfect for you because um, it's about game design and breaking into the industry. And I'm sure you've looked at a billion junior or entry game designer portfolios and and resumes and stuff. And they're just asking what stands out in their portfolio, or I guess even in a resume to, to break into the industry, like design wise. Is there anything like that you ever seen that was really cool that somebody had on theirs that re really stood out, or um, or just the thing you would recommend is is important to to not miss? Um, I don't know. It's uh, don't try to like overfill your resume with a bunch of like little things. Um. I tend to just look through it and find like find something that just ask about um, and see what the person's reaction is, how how passionate they are about it, how knowledgeable they are about a point. Because um, some people will put in a line that's somewhat generic, but sounds really big, uh, thinking that that'll just be like some good impression and kind of bury it in a bunch of other stuff. Um, and then you ask them about it and you realize that they just kind of made a suggestion for this big thing one day in a meeting uh, and they're taking credit for it. Um, 
so I definitely say like only put stuff on there that you really that you really can speak to um, and that you're definitely passionate about uh, or, or super knowledgeable in, depending on what you're going for, obviously for a position. Um, but I, I'd say a resume should be pretty, pretty succinct to the point. Um, some people like to use buzzwords, uh, which can be helpful um, um, uh, to kind of make the line shorter so you can, so the bullet points are you know, like very directed. Um, but yeah, I mean, for me, a resume, I just take it case by case. Uh, I'll get a person's name, I'll look them up online. Um, so the first thing you do is go look them up online? Uh, Same. Go, to yeah. LinkedIn, go to LinkedIn or something like that um, yeah. and check it out. And uh, let's say they got like a, a little web page with their stuff on it. Like what kind of stuff would you want to see if you're hiring a game designer? Like obviously you don't want to see like their their fishing escapades or whatever. Like what kind well, of actually, thing would, like, would you recommend that they put forward like as like the key thing? Or I, I would say just a small side note on that. You do want I to actually am looking for whatever the first thing is they put on their website. So it's yeah. not actually what it is. It's more What's what they that? surface because yeah. that's like, that's them saying I am X. Yes. And this, so, this <laughs> yeah, right. And, and honestly, like jokes aside, if, if, if they have like 80% of their websites fishing and then there's a tab I can go to about games, I'm like, Maybe they're not really into games, right? Maybe it's like a small side. <laughs> so like, it, it's very valuable true. to me to know that. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's a good point. Like you go to the site, see what's there. What's Because obviously first impression is huge. Um, but ultimately it's, you know, once you dig down deep into it, whatever whatever part of the meat is relevant to, to the position, you know, if I'm making, if they're interviewing to do a fantasy MMO and all their examples are just sci-fi stuff, or if they have, you know, um, uh, fan fiction or something that they're written and it's all like sci-fi based or western based or whatever then the question you know one the question interview but like you have a bunch of stuff that's you know thematically completely counter to, to what you're interviewing for why would you why are you coming to this um uh, when there's obviously other opportunities for this type of stuff and just see what what the response is you know it could be i'm trying to to learn new things or or you know just um opportunity wise this is just what's you know what's out here and i want to try you know i want to get into the industry um but uh but yeah so uh, I'll, I'll go look them up um find out and also you know linkedin because we have linkedin i'll look at recommendations um if there are some because those can be really telling um oh really yeah i mean i mean you know you and i have talked about this stuff uh it, it's it's kind of small uh, um that you know people want come might gloss over uh, recommendation but every little bit helps so yeah. if if someone if someone actually like you don't like reach out for recommendations like if someone just if you just get you know organically get a bunch of recommendations from your work that that's truly useful um i guess that's fair if they have a good number of them yeah right like um, there's, there's a lot of them there then it would make um, sense because if it's like one or two then it's like ah, okay but if it's you know you get 10 or 15 of them and they're all kind of saying the same thing about your character or what you do yeah. Then I have a good basis um, going in. Like, okay, well, seems like this guy's pretty good. Let me ask him questions related to this type of stuff. Um, so yeah, I, I do a, a lot of stuff, Perfect. but generally case by case. It's definitely looking up the person. Um, what are they? What are they interviewing for? Um, what is in their resume? Um, I definitely try to find stuff in the resume that are gotcha. It's like it, this. Uh, this sounds a little little crazy. You're describing like like itemization, which you've used every gigantic word in the world to not call it itemization. Um, why is that? Uh, can you tell me about itemization? And if they can't speak to it, if it's just kind of a, you know, this big fancy way that they describe it, then eh, I don't know, you're, you're trying to make it sound like more than what it is. 
um, and we need to we need to move on from that. Yeah, and, and there's nothing worse. I, I, everyone thinks they should do it because it's the thing you're taught when you're building your first CVs. But whenever I start scanning through and I say, I am punctual, I enjoy productivity, it's like, you're are you a robot or a human being, right? Like, I in, in order, when I look at anyone's resume, whether it's a website or a document or something, first thing I look for is, what are they passionate about? That's check yes. one. Check two is... Is the thing they're passionate about the thing I want to hire for? That's that's immediately amazing. And then the third one is, are they good at it? That's actually less important to me because if somebody is passionate about the same thing that I want to hire them for, I know I can ask them to look into it and they'll spend their entire weekend researching it on their own free time because they're enjoying the topic. Yes. Yeah. So in order, it's it's are they do they enjoy something that's useful to what I'm doing? And then secondly, are they good at it or and or will they put the resources into it? Um, because th the most telling thing you can have in an interview, and good interviewers will do this all the time, they want you passionately talking about something. And so they'll start probing you until they find that one thing where you're like, you might be saying, oh, what projects did you work on in college? Oh, I did this thing and this thing. Oh, and I did this thing. And he's like, oh, tell me about that one, the one that you suddenly lit up about once you started talking. And that'll that'll give me more insight into what you're like and what you're doing and what you enjoy. So passion is the thing. Mm -hmm. Look for Look for someone's passion on a project. And that's, so basically... I, to put it short, I do really well in interviews. And the reason I do well is, is just because I can sound passionate about any topic I talk about. And so if you can if you can engage the person and go, yeah, this is really cool and this is why I like it, people will gravitate to that because it's um it's infectious, right? Like enthusiasm is an infectious thing. So yeah. be enthusiastic about the stuff that you're you're working on. Yeah, I have definitely found in interviews that um, when the interview turns into me asking them questions, um, then I've won. Um you know, if I, you know, a lot of smiling, a lot of, you know, even if you, even if like, it's something that you like, maybe like, maybe, maybe I'm going to brain fart on or something like that. You can, you can kind of talk past it, get to another subject and then come back to it. I think an interview always appreciates when you don't try to just dismiss a question, but they can understand when you may not have an answer right away. Um, and you can move on to something else. And then you always address and say, oh, well, let back to get back to the question you asked earlier, or did I answer your question right? Um, that type of stuff is hugely important. And when someone does it for me as an interviewer, I can definitely appreciate it. Um, but to your point about likes and dislikes, I think another big thing is like looking at hobbies and stuff they do on the side is big. Um, you know, I'm a big comic book collector. A lot of people will talk about that stuff in interviews um, because it does relate to video game uh, medium, of course. Um, it's a lot of storytelling, a lot of visual storytelling. <laughs> What's that? Um, <laughs> oh man yeah yes uh oh, God. Um, we like a lot of stuff uh friends um, <laughs> um so so yeah i mean you know just definitely do research but i think hobbies one of my personal favorites by the way very good um i'm i'm lukewarm i'm lukewarm um i don't care about i don't like the show but I, i've been reading this since long before there was a show oh yes yes um unfortunately i haven't gotten as deep into it as I, it seems like you have um uh but i need to find some time. um but yeah so i mean hobbies is definitely like another big thing um because it also lets you gives you insight into the person as you know just kind of a personal level and i know this is an aside as well but this is this is probably my biggest recommendation for a comic by the way if we're talking comics so if you've never seen irredeemable if you like the boys or other shows like that oh, yeah, yeah. this is basically the concept of the dark superman right this is the one where oh. imagine if superman turned bad what would that world be like and so irredeemable oh, yeah. is really cool 
It's a really good story. Is it, is it kind of like so that movie Brightburn, the one that's like yeah, the, it, it's it's like that. Only it's more um, it's it's more of Superman just one day just snapped all all of the everyone ooh, applying all this pressure okay, to him, and he just give he just says you know I all this good stuff I do if I do one bad thing everybody gives out to me, and so all of a sudden the world changes overnight because Superman has a bad day. Effectively, it's kind of like the <laughs> the killing joke, but for Superman. Yeah, because there's like the what is it? The red sun when he's like he lands in Russia or whatever. Um, uh, so I'm I'll be I'm writing that down right now. Sorry, my mic or my keyboard is loud. Uh, yep, I will be picking that up this week. Nice, awesome, thanks. Oh wow, it's nice. long too. Thirty-seven issues. Ooh, yeah. It's it's like it gets really dark too, which I like. It's like it's <laughs> the proper sort of. Proper dark. Yeah, I mean, Dark Superman is, is such an interesting concept because, like, he's, of course, they've depowered him over the years, unfortunately, because he is so powerful. Um, and Marvel doesn't really have the best analog. Um, they brought out the Sentry um, during World War Hulk, which is one of the greatest um, uh, comic runs uh, in a long time. Um, they brought out the Sentry and they just kind of made up this guy out of nowhere. Uh, and he's supposed to be a powerful Superman, but he has this, this crazy stuff going on in his brain. Um, so, like, there's no analog for Superman. He's just he's just so powerful. And they've, like, recently, like, or, you know, the past, guess, 10 years, they've tried to redefine his powers. And he has a force field around him instead of yeah. being impenetrable and all this kind of goofy stuff. He, he's um, had so he's probably the most inconsistent power set of anybody. Like, <laughs> if, if you go all the way back, right, right way yeah. back to when he first started, his, he, he could lift a car that was his strength level not like lifting planets and then um if, if you if you look at his early powers this yeah. isn't a joke look this up one of his earliest powers is he could project a mini superman he'd have a second mini superman would come out of him and that was no. the power that he no, had no. yeah yeah <laughs> gotta get that one back <laughs> oh no 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 look it up no way look it up. Oh, man. I think a lot of people don't realize that. I guess uh, ultimately Shazam and the entire Captain Marvel um, family is basically as powerful as Superman, but they're all based on Egyptian gods, Teth Adam, all this stuff. And they're all magic based. So technically they should be able to beat Superman. But I don't think that that's ever actually happened. Um, well, well yeah. that's because they, they can't, right? The problem with Superman isn't just that he's powerful. That's one problem. The problem that he's like too powerful. The second one is his entire brand is hope. He's basically oh. the same as Batman, right? Like, you can't have a character who is literally the embodiment of hope and justice, and he can't, because then he can't lose. Like, yeah. not only physically, but as a narrative device, if he yeah. loses, hope dies. And so they've written themselves into a corner where it's like, he can only exist either in good universes where he wins or yeah. bad universes where he loses. You can't write a version where he loses, but it's also still okay. <laughs> hope has died. <laughs> So, Salim, there was a question about hiring game designers I wanted to ask you. Yeah, I popped it up here just on um, where to actually look for a game designer. So somebody actually is hiring, looking for a game designer, trying trying to hire. Like where, if you're, if you're out looking and you can't just post and have people come show up, you know, because you're at some big place, like where do you recommend people go look? Is there a place you look or a place like, I mean, you like if you go look for jobs? Attend like... I guess like game jams and stuff like that. Um, that's a good place to start. Uh, you know, if you want to go to sh like any, like 
gaming show stuff like E3 or anything like that, you could. But if they're just uh, trying to hire, they're probably not going to be able to do any of that. My guess uh, is they just want to hire I mean, like not, remotely if online. Not, if you're not posting, I mean, the best thing is gatherings or, or I mean, some some way of social media. You have to. I mean, LinkedIn is good too. Again, um, uh, you can just post yeah. on there somewhere. If it, of course, that depends on network of uh, naturally. Um, but kind of word of mouth, getting out there that you're looking for something because it depends on you know, how big your studio that you're forming is, or you know how big your project is. Um, I mean, if you're if you're just starting out, I mean, it's definitely going to be a lot of word of mouth. Um, uh, you know, finding a designer and then seeing who's in his network, stuff like that. Um, uh, but outside of that, like, I mean, use using the internet in some way, shape, or form to some sort of social networking should help. Um, and then, like I said, like boots on ground, if you can go to, go to some, you know, unity gatherings or anything like that. Um, and just putting word out there, seeing what people are doing, maybe even, maybe even host one. Um, oh yeah. Hosting like a meetup or gathering or something. Um, yeah, not bad. Who comes to it. Of course that also relies that you get the word out. Um, so in that same vein, you'd also be, uh, use that same spot to look for game designers. Um, yeah, I would look on um, the Gamma Sutra job board too. W one of the oh, few yeah. places that I know that actually has like game design jobs. I'll post a link in the chat. I don't know if there are any other places that really oh, have many game the... design. They did, but they like took it down and went back to the forums. Oh, really? So they they had that whole Unity Connect thing, but yeah, uh, from what I understand, they took it down and went back to like forums. So that that actually might be a good place too. That was a good place to get programmers and designers in the past so that might be a, a good place to look surprised if there there's in like a reddit or something like that where you could maybe find people there may be um but yeah i mean ultimately it's just social media um uh, it's gonna be i like your idea of linkedin too just posting the job on there like in unity groups too maybe a uh, unity facebook groups too but i mean it's i i guess it's hard to figure out like how you hire a good game designer if you're not already a game designer too. That's what, that's always been one of the hard things. Like, how do you hire somebody that's good at a job that you can't do yourself? Like, well, it's, it's mean, wildly inconsistent, that, right? Like, that's something. There's there's a video by GMTK that just came out very recently. It's about um, game design and, and finding jobs, and it specifically mentions that uh, he's interviewed a lot of people about game design jobs and about the interviews they're given, and he links to another video which is a GDC talk from. 2016 or something and it's basically saying this guy is like i have done interviews at all of these big companies for game design and here is the tests they gave me and how wildly inconsistent and the lack of information i've gotten and various stuff it's just really fascinating so i would say check that video out the, the latest gmtk video um on game design and, and getting jobs and that that gives you an insight from like I, I didn't know any of that stuff that was very valuable info yeah game design tests are I'm definitely all over the place. Um, I've been asked to do some crazy stuff in game design tests and given like three hours to do them. And some of them, my response like this, sorry, like if you want me to, to fill this out, then you're going to give me the two or three days that I need to design this entire gameplay system that you're asking me to detail out here just to get an interview. Um, and in most cases, they're like, all right, like we'll let you do that. Um, I think the like shortened, shortened time is just to see if someone will do it. Um, but some tests are like, hey, name name a couple items and give us a theme and then come up with a cool way that these things would interact. And others are like, can you design a complete monetary system? And then later on, can you explain how this 
how this would work economically with it. Wait, what? Wait, <laughs> I, have, I have how long? I have two hours. This there's 20 questions on this thing, and they're all very similar. Uh, no, I'm not doing this. <laughs> you actually bring up a good point. It's something I think is good advice for everybody in general. Just a little asterisk. Sometimes in an interview, and I, I had this at Microsoft. I was I literally interviewed there, and I had this exact problem. Didn't realize it till afterwards. You will often get asked a question where they purposefully don't give you enough information to see if you're going to be meek about it and just like try and solve it incorrectly without the correct information, hmm. or if you have the foresight in a team to specifically ask for more information and inspect and, and solve the problem. So if you ever find yourself going, I don't know how to do this because they didn't give me enough information, like actually ask, right? Because the worst thing you can do if you're hired to build systems or design things is to just assume you're right and go yeah. make it and then waste yeah. everyone's time. So a lot of interviewers will purposefully give you not enough information to see if you're smart enough to start picking up and, and like correct the direction of what the requirements are. Yeah, yeah. Communication, don't be afraid, talk to your team. That's what they're there for. Um, <clears throat> wait, is that, is that, is that Ben? I don't think is so. Dean? Is that, is that our Ben? I think it's a different. Okay. I think his has just been. Okay. All right. Very, the names are the same. But yes, he did share r slash game dev classifieds. I didn't realize that existed. So check that out. Subreddit for game dev jobs. So. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I was curious about the, uh, the game design tests. It sounds like they're kind of crazy. Yeah. Like, I've done lots of code tests, and they also vary dramatically. Sometimes it's like two questions that are totally useless, and sometimes it's 40 questions where like, three of them are things that you're actually using. Um, sometimes it's build a whole project. Let's like, you know, go make this little game you know, and give us the code for it. You know? uh, Th those are the ones that I like the most because I don't have to just answer pointless questions. I actually just get to show that I can do the job. <laughs> um, but I mean, the your, your question specifically said good game designer and good game designer is very subjective because it depends on the subject matter and all this, all this other type of stuff. And like we talked about earlier, um, determining what is good for you is, um, is, you know, based on probably their background, hobbies, what they show and what, like all those other things that go into it. So a good game designer, um, it's unfair to say that someone is good or bad because he could be a good game designer at something else. He just may not be a good game designer for you. Um, so I guess like the right fit of game designer is a better way to put it. Um, because I'm certainly good at certain things, but I'm not good at others. Um, those things I try not to interview for. Sometimes I do interview for them and, and I get good feedback on it. So then I discover something else that I might uh, be capable of doing, um, but I'm just not interested in something like that. And then somebody was curious your thoughts on Monster Hunter Rise. I assume you both have thoughts on it. I have not played it yet. Um, I have not played it either. In fact, I haven't even played the other one. I, I bought it. I just haven't gotten around to playing the other uh, Monster Hunter yet. I'm a gigantic Monster Hunter crazy man um i think i've devoted over a period of the game series i've man i don't know upwards a couple thousand hours um total <laughs> each game is definitely worth every single penny that i that i spend on it um so i started on friday um i enjoy it so far uh i'm more of the old school monster hunter guy i'm a big world fan but world was made to be um more accessible 
Um, so I, I have heard that tutorials can be obnoxiously overdone. That you're still getting tutorials like twenty hours into the game. It's exhausting. Oh, yeah. It's it's uh, world is is not, but in visually world, it's, it's kind of like the jump from Final Fantasy VI to Final Fantasy VII. Um, uh, whole new engine, um, visually just insane. So seeing these monsters animate and move. And when you look at how they animate and do the monsters um, with their mocapping and stuff, it's it's insane. Um, so Rise is is using the Resident Evil Seven engine uh, on the Switch, uh, and it's man, it it, it runs really smoothly, um, especially for a Switch game um, where you expect you know some slowdown or lag because the system specs are obviously not a PS4, PS5, or Xbox. Um, uh, so gameplay wise, really good. Um, one thing I would say is that there's a lot of stuff they're teaching you at the beginning and you're just getting pop-ups left and right, left and right. Um, so there's just like a glut of things they're teaching you and you forget about a lot of stuff. Um, uh, so you kind of miss some things, but generally, I mean, it's a monster hunter game, pretty fun. Um, I'm actually, will be playing today after this, probably for the rest of the day, uh, online with a buddy of mine. Um, actually a buddy of me and Jason's, uh, uh, Lenny, um, Oh, cool. Oh, yeah. Who uh, who started out doing video, right? What's got that? into game development. Oh, he he right. got into game he development doing video, video editing. editing. That's right. That's yeah. right. Um, <laughs> yeah, when we were talking about that, Lenny kept popping into my head. Um, um, so so yeah, I mean I I dig it, but like I said, I'm a Monster Hunter fan. Um they have some new new monsters in there um that are cool and obviously uh, monsters are always animated well. The writing stuff is pretty fun, and they have this new tower defense mode. Um, where you just have monsters coming like crazy, you're setting up turrets and stuff like that. Um, so, and you know, I got to play that for the first time yesterday, and it was it was actually a lot of fun. Um, oh, cool! So, I'll have yeah. to grab it. Yeah, it's pretty fun. Try it out. Sounds fun. I now I'll have a little bit of time this week, so maybe I'll get to try it out. Uh, story had to step away for just a second, but we had another question about game designer versus game developer and like the, the crossover between the two kind of words and roles I, I think that in a smaller small places the roles are very kind of combined a lot of the time where like the the person doing the code may also be doing a lot of the design or maybe kind of a, a mix that there's not just a person doing solely dedicated design work but um a lot of the time like in the cases that you've been in at least and most of the ones that i've been in the game designer is not really doing like the development stuff. They're doing like design and implementation of that design. You talk about that a little bit or well, I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on that? Like game designer versus developer. I don't, I don't know. I think of developer as like a overarching thing that includes designer yeah. artist, and programmer and yeah, stuff. But I think that some people it. think of developers like an all in one that's doing everything. That's what exactly a game developer is. You, I mean, the words you develop games and developing games has many aspects to it artists, you know, music, um, design, code, that's all, that's all part of game development. Um, so if you do any of those, from my point of view, you are a game developer. Um, um, but if we're talking about like the roles within the game developer, obviously they're just different ones. Um, and sometimes the game designer is also a gameplay programmer. Um, um, and obviously a lot of designers deal with scripting, which is, you know, pseudo code. Um, um, a game designer has to understand at least the systems if you're a systemsy person but a lot of, a lot of times in content especially if you're making more advanced content like boss fights or um you know a little mini games you have to understand logic um and just how things interact 
pretty basic basic stuff that you know is kind of the foundation of 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 programming or is a foundation of programming um so so generally i could see how those lines get blurred a little bit and obviously you know with the proliferation of, of engines like unity and unreal uh it made it e it's made it easier for game designers who probably don't want to dabble in things like c which is a language that makes me want to dig my eyeballs out um uh uh, it makes it easier for them to do those things that, that you know, in the past required uh, someone to be hyper-focused on that type of stuff. Um, you know, last we talked about academia and stuff like that. You know, the game design courses are teaching, are basically teaching both things at once. Um, you know, people are getting game design degrees and they know how to program, but they also understand, you know, the game design side of stuff. Um, so we're producing more and more people who are hybrids. Um, from the get-go, which I think is great. And then the tools tools access um, just means the future is bright. Um, and I think eventually it's going to be that a game designer is able to do both. Um, but the value of a, of a low-level uh, gameplay or game programmer is still significant because um, you're talking about graphics programmers um, and deep, deep systems programmers um, that, that you need to be able to focus on that stuff in order to do it do it well and do it right and support, you know, the rest of the game development team. Sure. Uh, oh, quick question on your, like, so just throughout your career doing design, like how much, like what percent of time do you think it, you spend doing the more theoretical, like writing up design docs, coming up with ideas and figuring out what to do versus actually implementing where you're putting data in or placing things in the world? Like, is that a 50, 50 split or like 75, um, 25 or 90, 10? I think it depends it probably depends on the situation. Um, paper design is pretty, pretty huge. Um, if I'm just developing something for myself, uh, depending on, you know, what time frame I have, I might just throw something on a whiteboard real quick for myself and then try to prototype it in game. Um, because I already know how the tools work and all this stuff. And I, and I kind of have a target in mind. So I just try to see what I can do real quick in the tools and just kind of get my fingers dirty. Um, but if it's like a, a new big system, or something like that, especially if I'm involving other people, if I have to pitch it, um, get it approved, things like that. Um, I will definitely spend a bunch of time on paper design, uh, figuring things out, you know, because you want to define your gameplay loops and things like that. And, and you want to visualize it for people so that the, that the rest of the team can understand it, because obviously you're doing it, you need some level of support. And then if you can sneak in a prototype um, along with that, then that's huge. Um, uh, so, uh, I mean, I think it definitely depends on the situation, but I'd say, uh, I don't know, maybe 50, 50, um, uh, actually I probably lean more about 70, 30 paper design is, is it's pretty, pretty big, uh, at least for me, I, I love, I love the visual of, of a design, um, being able to sit there and read it and just, if I can visualize it just from the, from, from the document, then then I think it's basically like in a state that's pretty solid as far as the implementation side goes. Whether it proves out or not, don't know. But um, if the paper design has shown that the person's like thought about every aspect of it, at least or most aspects of it, um, then you know that you're gonna you're you're kind of uh, preparing yourself or or preventing future mistakes um, um, that have come about after you spend a bunch of time implementing something and say, oh man, we got to pivot here because we didn't think about this one thing. And then you have to basically take a bunch of steps backwards. That reminds me of a question for both of you, actually, that popped up in a comment. 
Um, so like last week you had mentioned one of using one of three game design documents that you have. Mm -hmm. Um, and there were a lot of questions about like, do you have examples of these documents? Are they out somewhere? And I thought both of you might actually have game design document templates somewhere that you might recommend that people like take a look at, or do you guys have any of those or. So I don't, I don't have any on hand, but what I did find is there's actually a lot of people will release theirs. Especially for older games, you can find, like, I'm pretty sure there's, like, an EverQuest document out there. There's one for a Doom game. There's a bunch of them that you can just find. So if you're, if you're willing to do the Googling, you can find a lot of people will say, here is our original design doc. And so that's really valuable to go and see how actual, how often, how different the original documents yeah. are from how games end up. Um, I have, I mean, as far as, like, a template that you could just give someone and just say, fill in here, this is kind of what you would put here. And I have examples of those. Um, that I use, but, you know, every time I go someplace new or even, you know, from system system or, or design to design, sometimes I'll just kind of mix them up a little bit based yeah. on stuff that I've learned previously, just from interacting with people. Um, but yeah, I mean, I have some templates. Um, um, if someone wanted me to actually just like make one, uh, and fill out some general stuff for each section, I could do that. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know. To Jason's point, uh, you can definitely Google a bunch of stuff and hold every quest doc would be very interesting to me um, <laughs> uh, just to see, because uh, I remember some of them. Like I just did a quick Google there and I found the one for Grim Fandango like immediately. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, but yeah, if, like, if this video gets a thousand likes, then I'll force Salim to make that doc. <laughs> and I'll share it in the description. Leveraging me. I will harass the crap out of him until he makes it. Um, and we'll put it into the description once it hits a thousand. Okay. We're only at 114 right now, so you're somewhat safe. But we'll see. I think I'm good. You, you shot for the moon there. Awesome. Yeah. Well, we got got to got to push high. And so he's asking about Charles. He's not here today. He is in the middle of painting, so he couldn't couldn't get away. Um, but he'll be back next week. But then maybe maybe later on this week. already. He so was repainting black black. something and in the middle of it and tried to step away and then yeah, <laughs> not a good idea when you're married. <laughs> I wouldn't step away from that either. <laughs> Leave it at half painted. <laughs> oh, man. All right. So, yeah, hopefully we get up to the, the thousand likes and we get that game design doc and we'll, we'll go, go through and share it. And then we can do a whole stream talking about your game design doc. You're killing me here. I know that's that's cool. We'll get you a new, a fresh new camera there. <laughs> oh, <are you? laughs> I, I I told Salim I was going to keep guilting him by by sending him uh, updated hardware to to improve the stream. <laughs> keep him coming back. I've just switched your internet over to my name, Salim. Oh, geez. <laughs> all right. Let's see what else we got for questions in here. I can send over. Oh, somebody somebody actually has a game design doc. They want to share. Yeah, if you have one, um, send it over. I'd be happy to share them too. Maybe go through a bunch of them. That would actually be cool. Actually, yeah. If a lot of people in here happen to have a game design doc that are interested uh, in like sharing and don't mind it being on the stream, send it to me in an email, and I'd love to go through and just do a uh, a review on some game designs and just talk about them and see what they're like. I mean. For me, it's not like I'm going to give a lot of great advice, but I'll probably learn a lot. And I think everybody on the stream will. Um, and then maybe Salim or somebody will have advice <laughs> on, yeah, on how so to improve them. Someone just said you can make a game design Milano template. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. Which would be interesting. I just don't know how um, uh, 
uh, I think a Milanote will be a part of a game design document because um, Milanote is kind of like, I think it's kind of after the idea ultimately, um, or it's kind of a breakdown of the idea or the gameplay loops, stuff like that. Um, but you still need to have like a document that someone can sit and read um, producers, artists, all this stuff you need to like sit down and look at it. Um, uh, so I'm not sure how, how good Milanote is as far as like actual, like full on documentation. If it has like that integration in there, then yeah, that thing's pretty sweet. I think you could do it, but I, I get the idea of wanting like an actual, just like, like a dot doc file, right? Yeah. Like a text yeah. file that you can just share around and send around as an attachment that kind of outlines in text, um, the, the whole overview. I like the Milanote side for being able to like share details and like go a lot yeah. deeper. Like you could take that initial design, turn it into boards and cards that dive into like more detail where people can go see the stuff that they care about and not have it be a 500 page document with all of the things. And you're trying to find like the, the right spot. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. I think it's, you'd be I think surprised it how short a lot of them are, right? Like, yeah. like oh, yeah. one that I found was, um, I found one for GoldenEye 007 uh, on NCC4. And it's like, what is it, 10 pages or something? Like, it's just, it's very, like, writing dense, but it does highlight mechanically touching each of the areas, the pace, the control, the realism of the yeah. game, the mission outline, multiplayer, the, the various different levels that they intend to make and what, what the intent is. But it's not very big, right? Like, it's it, it gives you a, a taste of it, but the whole, it's like you're not, it's not the whole game, right? So yeah, yeah. I, I, it's interesting to see how, it, how it's um, very information dense. Now, I'd be curious from that design doc, because that's effectively like a, like the core game design. I'm curious um, how many docs um, came after that or came along with that, like the level design, each mission design doc, um, the little the smaller systems. I wonder if they just spawned a bunch of smaller docs, so you have to put them together as a whole. It's like we were talking about last last week the the Vanguard LLDD, you know, is 500 pages long. Um, and that, that was the LLDD. I think the, the high level design doc was, was longer. Um, funny enough. Um, uh, so we had like two documents that were like the annals of history of mankind in length. Um, <clears throat> and they dealt with mainly, uh, story and background, both of them, funny enough, um, dealt with that. Uh, and then, you know, very light on the system C part of stuff. But I think the expectation there was that, um, once those particular things were fleshed out, those would have their own design documents um, uh, and be, you know, mm. less meaty, um, uh, and more, uh, more, more uh, to the point uh, um, instead of like a page on on combat. Um, I think our combat would yeah, be up. They actually yeah, and I think, and, that and also works. just to to make a note on that, it, there is also a very big like asterisk difference. I said this before about documents. But different documents have different objectives. Yeah. So there's not like the God document that does everything all of the time. Yeah. Oftentimes there is a pitch document who's like, yep. if you're if you're asking for money, you want someone's quick attention. You're not going to, they're not going to read every single systemic microsystem yep. you've got. Then you've got like the game design Bible, the big doc that's like everyone, like the whole, like all of the minutia and details. And then as you're saying, level design docs and different things. Yep. So it's not like... A lot of people make the mistake of saying, can I have a template for the way if I fill this whole document in, my game will be perfect. It doesn't work like that. It's like yeah. each document yeah. serves a purpose. And the bigger your company, the more documents and the more people you have to impress. So th there's not going to be a document that makes your game perfect. It's just not the way that works. Yeah. It's If you don't, 
So some people will go and like make a huge document, but it's them and their friend making a game. It's pointless. You're doing this because that's what you feel like a real big game studio does. If your documents aren't serving you, if they're not either to get information across or to help you elucidate ideas, don't just write documents because they feel good to write, you know? <laughs> and don't put yeah. extra words in them just to make them bigger. Yeah. I feel like a lot of the time people just do it because it's easy, the easiest thing to do. Yeah. Put a user story in there, put some visuals, your gameplay loop, um, you know, and just try to keep, you know, a lot of cases you can just kind of bullet point um, a feature or, or something. Um, keep it succinct and, and, and direct and people can understand it. Yeah, and I just shared all those links that uh, Jason was mentioning in chat. So if anybody wants and that was to go like, look at I didn't have these handy. Not... That was just a quick Google. I found like Age of Empires, Smash Bros, GoldenEye, um, Zork. Like, I'm sure if you if you dig deeper, there's hundreds and hundreds of these out there. Yeah. It's definitely a lot of info out there. But it is hard to find like actual good ones. And like, I, I would like to have just a nice template that's like, here's where you, you know, where you start, like the, the core things that you need in every game, I guess, like just the basic stuff, like the overview, the objective, what that gameplay loop is going to look like, um, the the inspiration stuff, um, whatever those core pieces are. I know like what I put into my stuff, but it, I'm sure it's lacking quite a bit too. So I, I'd love to have a good doc on that. Let's see, what would you do if you're trying to get into the games industry today? I have no idea what I would do now. Well, I don't know, I, I would reach out to people yeah. <laughs> like, like everybody that i know that's gotten into the industry has done it through some uh, some sort of just social interaction just talking to yeah. other people uh, i'm sure that it happens other ways i just don't see that anymore because i don't hire people anymore for for games or or work at a place that's hiring people for yeah. game dev jobs but i, I know it, i mean the other thing is just actually applying for jobs like you got to actually go out there and try yeah. go out there and put in applications everywhere and then take whatever you can get. I mean, like when I took my first game dev job, I actually, I was going to record a video about it today. Like I, I took a job in QA that was kind of like a, it was a drop in pay from what I was working in a state that was twice as expensive. And I had to move to go get into the industry. And like, I just, I knew that that was what I had to do to get in because I wasn't getting in. <laughs> like, you were living I, that, away from, weren't you living away from the family for a little bit? Yeah, yeah, until we got moved yeah. down here. So yeah, I had to move down by myself for a couple months. Um, and then, yeah, work for definitely less than I was making at Intel, but um, not not by a whole lot, I guess. And then the cost was just way, way higher though. So I was like totally broke for, for quite a while. I'm just working through and, Kind of getting into the industry, but I say just yeah, get in whatever you can. I take one of those positions. I actually did a video on like a bunch of different game dev jobs uh, last week, and getting in through QA and CS and stuff are great, great ways to do it. And that's kind of how you got in, right, Slim? Yeah, I mean, but your your situation speaks like directly to what we keep preaching about desire and passion. Like you, you wanted to get into the industry. You had you had a job um that was seemingly fine but it just is, isn't what you wanted to do you want you got into the industry you sacrificed a little bit um and you were passionate about it and you rose up through the ranks um i got lucky right place right time um and took advantage of every opportunity i had when you said yes right uh, yeah. all you had to do was yeah. say like no i i like gamestop and stay here yeah. like that like <laughs> totally different life right <laughs> yep 
I, I, yeah, it's just the the taking the opportunity when it when it appears and just jumping on it. Yeah, but I mean, otherwise, it's the same as it has been any other time. Apply for jobs. It's just applying for jobs is different now. Um, they're actually it's easier to apply for jobs now. You obviously don't have to like get in a suit and walk around with your resume and going places and dropping it off. Um, yeah. uh, um, you know, and knowing people. Um, and you know, because of the availability of tools, you could maybe just make something and, and submit that as a part of your resume, um, or add it to your portfolio or however you want to do it. So, um, it's pretty much, I'd say getting into the industry is about the same as, you know, getting into any other industry. You got to start somewhere, apply, um, and then get your foot in the door and see what happens. I, I will say I've, I've, most of the people I know that are like actively working on games are, well, not indie games. People who are working in in the industry uh, are are almost all of them went through QA, or or at least most of them yeah. did. And uh, the the big bit of advice I've heard is <clears throat> is you you have to you have to pay your dues, as they say. I I know I know people who want to get in the games and they kind of stamp their foot and they're like, well, I want to go straight into doing. It. It's like you don't you don't get to do that. That's not nobody gets to take the shortcut. That's not how it works. And if you're if you're someone who's frustrated and and you know you you won't you won't play the game and and like learn by following people and going through the process you're not going to be someone people want to work with so you're yeah. going to have to accept there's a, there's a, a cost a time cost to putting putting in the time and to to work with people and to to be given the opportunity that you want you know yeah 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 i think it's like that with any like high demand or like job that there there aren't a ton of that are really in high demand, right? Like a lot of people want to be game designers or just game developers. So you've got to kind of put in the work and I think really shine too. Like if you get into QA and you're just slacking and not doing anything, it's not going to go anywhere, right? You got to like work your ass off and be, be the best QA person for however long that is mm -hmm. and then move on up. Like you, you want to- I, I would say it. though, to, to Salim's point, right? This is one thing that people do not under, like so underestimate this. From a tools perspective, when I was first starting doing games, there was no such thing as a game engine that you could just download and play with. Yeah. At the time, there was UDK, and UDK was like yeah. UE3 Lite that you could kind of play around with, but you couldn't use the tools the real guys were using. You had to pay for that, have a license, and get the real hardware, real software. Um, and even these days, without going into details, like you can't get your hands on like a PlayStation dev kit without a whole series of stuff. And so these days, rather than like hoping to get into the industry the big the big bad asterisk industry you can just make games you can literally just go out and make games and um you can you can kind of shortcut yourself so most most people i know uh who are in games now like i know people who've worked at sony and worked at various other companies who started by making some unity projects and actually i know people who left sony to make their own game studio as an indie as well so the the, the idea is you you don't need to rely on like if I don't get that job, then I'm not, you know, whatever. You can start, just make some stuff. And oftentimes in the act of making games, you'll go to meetups, you'll meet people, you'll get your connections. And the truth is someone you know will have worked at some company you would have wanted to work at that might get you your foot in the door. So you're yeah. better off not sitting on your hands and trying to, you know, wait for the industry job, but just start doing stuff. And you'll you'll find it'll doors will open by accident more likely than sort of trying some really door knocking approach that might be a bit dated. Yeah, that's all good advice. I mean, most of the people I know that get hired do it through some contact. You know, it's somebody recommended the job to them or recommended them for the job. It tends to go that way. 
Especially in you games. might jump around. Yeah, you might jump around to two or three indies before you ever get like a AAA job. You might start working on a bunch of studios and, you know, do the circuit effectively. <laughs> uh, that's a good question. <laughs> oh, the uh, last I'd, love, point I'd there. love to know the answer. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, the top one that just came in. So that's a. That's a fun question. So how do you get along work with someone you don't get along with? Uh, it's, be nice, don't be a dick. And uh I mean just keep it professional ultimately. But yeah. uh, sometimes it yeah, I've had some I've had some fun uh, situations at work with some people. Yeah, some just try to avoid the people that you don't get along with. That's what I do. Yeah, sometimes, <laughs> like, it's, sometimes it's tough. I mean, yeah, yeah you can Oh, there you go. Or read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence. That's, great, that's a very great, good great book. Yeah. It is an amazing book. It'll give you lots of tips and tricks on how to uh, how to talk to people that you don't get along with. Too. Yeah, because a lot of people will have seen this and they'll say, "Oh, that sounds like some manipulative, you know, how to get people to do it." It's not like that. This this is more how to be empathetic to the fact that when yeah. you're in an argument with somebody, you both have competing objectives. And rather than like trying to manipulate your way to an answer, if you can engage with what their interests are in the conversation you're having, you can often just come to a conclusion. Like oftentimes people are fighting about unnecessary things. So I, I would I would say yeah. give this book a read. It'll really make you think about how you're engaging with people. You'll often find that you have an objective. I want this person to work with me. I want this thing to happen. And the way you're going about it is actively stopping the solution you want from happening. So maybe if you stop and question your approach to the person, you can kind of bridge the gap. Um, yeah. I've got I'm the audio book for that. Go ahead. I'm sorry, guys. They still can't hear me. I'll try to talk louder. Um, but uh, I, I find ultimately that um, if if it's a situation where it's just kind of super personal, someone does, doesn't like you because of something maybe outside of work, something you have to work with them anyway, it is hugely important that that be expressed to your production team or whoever, um, depending on if you're in that type, if you're in a studio that has that type of infrastructure. Um, but also I've found that, you know, sometimes it's just as simple as, hey, man, let's just let's just get this out. Like what what what's a, what's the issue? Why why can't we get along? Um, because having, having a, like a, a, a debate or an argument about a design is healthy. Like that's, that's good. As long as people are hearing each, both sides in the end, you should come out with something better than where you both started. Um, especially you're talking about two different disciplines, you know, programming and design or art and design or, or all three. Um, if everyone is listening to each other, they may not like the ideas that are coming out, but in the end, if everyone has the same goal of let's like get this, just get this resolved and you know, if you're an intelligent professional people, then you come up with a result that is seemingly better than where you all started. But if it's just like personal stuff, then, you know, I find in a lot of cases when you're just blunt with someone, hey, man, like what's going on? Like, why don't you like me or what's, you know, but if you just if you just put it out there and a lot of people just like they can't even answer. They don't know. Um, and, and from there, you can just kind of realize, you know what, I, I I, I was having a bad day and I saw you do something I didn't like. And from then on, like I've just been, you know, painting you a certain way. Um, but I realize now that you're not that way. And bam, there, there's, there's now a friendship there um, and a better working environment. Um, um, the, the question definitely seemed like it was like, like personal. If, if someone you don't like per, on personal, level, I think you just have to find some way, just talk to them. Like, 
communication is so important and people will appreciate a hundred percent. If someone is just straight up a dick, then that's just what they are. And you have to learn to work with their personality. Um, if you have to work with them, if you just cannot work with them, if it's untenable, then you need to, you need to let, um, your manager, supervisor, whoever know if a situation where that isn't a thing, um, uh, then you, you have to find some way, some way to, to resolve it. Or maybe you just, you just shouldn't work together. Um, um, but I think in most cases, human beings, we, we're just, we're all just driven by emotion. Um, if you, if you just straight up honest with someone, um, you don't have to get in their face or anything like that. Um, but if you just ask them a blunt question, you know, why don't you like me? Why can't we get along? What is this problem? Um, uh, I think in most cases, it might turn into some big screaming match. Um, uh, and then, you know, at the end of it, when you're both exhausted, uh, uh, you might just realize that you're both just puffing hot air uh, and that there really isn't any issue at all. Um, uh, it's just people misunderstanding each other. And trust me, I've I've been in situations um, where, you know, there's screaming matches, there's people on tables, there's, you know, people pointing fingers and yelling and screaming and, and all kinds of just really tables getting really chopped with swords. Stuff. What's that? I said tables getting chopped with swords. Yes. Um, <laughs> like really silly, silly things going on. People using inappropriate language, um, you know, uh, very inappropriate language towards me in the past has happened in a professional environment. And I just kind of laughed it off and just realized, you know, you're not mad at me. You're mad at something else. So let's just, you know, let's take us outside and talk about it. Not, not yeah, it, it's, it's funny what you're saying about when you if sometimes you'll confront like I've had this exact situation myself, you confront someone and say, is there is there a problem? Did I offend you? Is something going on? Yeah. And then they'll stop and you, you'll actually see them go, oh, uh, no, because now they're kind of working in their own head going, am I being obnoxious to them that they won't realize they're doing it because they've got some ingrained thing that yeah. maybe you, you took over some project they wanted or you're working on something or or they they think you're getting you're taking too much time up in meetings or whatever little thing it is, and if you just like ask them outright, they have to stop and ask themselves why they're treating you differently. Yep. And once they realize their own biases, I've actually seen this where just the act of asking and they're like, oh oh sorry, I didn't realize I was doing that, and then they're fine because they've realized their own bias immediately and they they stop it. It's it's funny how that can it's sometimes just a subconscious thing. There's a, there's another piece of advice I just give people in general. And it's something that I've learned over the years because um, uh, there's definitely times when I've like been or I still am very aggressive or very, um, very into someone's stuff when it comes to like design, especially if I'm really getting into to uh, an idea or something like that. Um, uh, I just go through like every day at, and into work day, I just have like a moment of introspection. I just kind of think about how my work day went, um, how I interacted with people. Um, and I try to like make note of, OK, well, this person said this and I, and I reacted this way. Um, and I don't think they liked it very much. So I, you know, in the future, I need to, to make sure that, that I, that I check myself. Um, because I, I didn't, I don't intend to like be disrespectful or something like that. So introspection is huge. Um, it, it definitely can, if, if you're serious about it, you can definitely realize a lot of things about yourself and your personality. Um, and then you, you start applying the variables of other people's personalities. And you realize that, you know, it's just we're just kind of wading into this crazy pool of, of different emotions and, and interactions. And, I mean, we're all going to make mistakes, but in the end, you give everyone the same respect, you know, same base respect. Um, I think you can work things out. Uh, on the on the thing about learning your own personality, I find that's very important because I do the same introspection. And for example, something I learned is 
certain people like myself have just strong personalities. In a meeting, you're you're going to you're yeah. going to take more oxygen out of the room, as they say. <laughs> and so, if you're aware that that's something you're going to do, and you're being fair about it to yourself, you can make a point of raising other people's voices who are quieter. So, I will actively in a room try to engage with when I'm aware of how much time I'm taking in a meeting to sort of get other people's voices. Um, and the other side of that too is not only is it about talking and sort of getting everyone on board, but it, it's also just about realizing when your your voice may seem louder and so more authoritative. So sometimes in a meeting, people will take my opinion because I said something and it's like, no, no, I'm not saying take my opinion. I'm not saying I'm right. I'm saying just because it sounds like I'm saying it with authority. I'm saying let's, it's mm -hmm. it's a discussion. Let's add it to the pile. And so you, you often have to sort of balance yourself out. And that's a, it's a hard thing to admit, but <laughs> it's part of the process. Yeah, sometimes, I mean, I've been in the same situation and sometimes it's just like people, there's a room full of people and they just want someone to to step up and, and make a decision, whether they have an opinion or not, if they're if they're kind of meek about it, or they don't like they just want someone. And then when you and then when you address them and say, hey, so what are your thoughts on this or what do you think they I'll go with what you said, because they, they like genuinely just don't they just want someone to make a decision because they want to work or they want to move forward, um, even if they do have an opinion. And in those cases, cases, yeah, cases, wow. Uh, it's a new word. Uh, in those cases, um, I have found that there's like a follow up that I'll just do with some people. Um, we get a smaller group. If it's like a big brainstorm session, I'll get in a smaller group and say, "Hey, like you guys, it seemed like you had some ideas, or so you wanted, you know, you may want to say something." But in a smaller group now, is there something that you want to say? Or are you still cool with this idea? Um, and sometimes you get some stuff out of that, um, uh, which can be, you know, pretty fun uh, or result in like even a better product. Mm, that 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 whole thing about uh, taking people aside—that's something I do actively on purpose. Where what I what I do is so here, here's here's a tip if you're ever in, if you're in college, for example, and the the lecturer says we need a leader for this group. So little life tip: the first people to put their hands up are going to be bad leaders. They are people who are hungry for power and they want to take the role. There's other people who are the second tier who are counting in their head. I count roughly ten seconds, and I will see if nobody puts their hand up. That means nobody is passionate about taking over, and then I'll take the role because I, I'm, I'm willing to do it, but I don't want that position. I want to be kind of doing work with people. And so I will do it if there is no voice, and th those people tend to be better at that position. And then, to your point about the quieter voices, if you have a conversation meeting and you're like, right, we need this, we need this, everyone break, and you can see somebody sort of like, mostly in the eyes, you can see people who are sort of looking down and looking, and they're like, they're yeah. trying to will themselves to say something. And if they're too shy to do it, don't just call them out in the middle of the meeting. Afterwards, go over, and what I do is I'll say, you know, I need a bit of help. I'm having a, I don't know how this should work. And you basically make them your confidant, right? You talk to them and say, can I get your advice on this? I need someone to talk to about this one-to-one. Mm -hmm. -one. And that gives them a chance to give you their feedback and it sort of feels a lot more like they're collaborating with you and not you're not putting them on blast in the whole room. They don't have to be loud, but you get you get to take their advice. And then once once the project starts up and you start working, it's great to call out that person and say, <clears throat> they gave me a great bit of advice or they suggested something. And that way they don't they get to choose how much engagement they have, but you're still taking their ideas on board. Oh, and that's huge. What you just said is huge. Making sure that people get credit or mentioning someone's name even if they would they care or not like it is it is a big thing it is for me it's it's big I, I i definitely try to make it a point like such and such said this or you know we you know me and such and such were talking about this thing the other day and they had this great idea like like that type of stuff because in the end it's not just your idea that made this great thing um 
you may have started the idea, but that idea has changed and been augmented and modified because it's a complete support structure related to that type of stuff. Um, so acknowledging people just builds up their confidence if, if they have, you know, you know, low self-esteem or they don't or they have lack of confidence, but also it just builds a relationship with that person. So the, the person we we're talking about previously that that you may maybe weren't getting along with or had an issue, um, you know, if they still had a good idea and you acknowledge them, then then all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, wait, you know, that slim guy, he actually isn't a dick. Um, so like like it, it's like acknowledging people's ideas or, or suggestions, especially if they're like super solid, like it, it just is great for them. It also that person then go, oh, man, like maybe I really like doing this type of stuff and it, it might open up some new avenue for them. Um, so that's like a really good point. Yeah, it's been interesting, guys. I got to wrap up in just a few minutes. I don't know if there's uh, more we want to talk about on this. I figure we could just do it again next week. I assume you guys are both available. I told you, is... I, I give you two. I give you two. I That's why I'll send you a camera. <laughs> <laughs> Get another one. More pressure to to continue yep. from. from I outside. think everybody likes having you here and your uh, <laughs> your your insights and feedback on stuff. Like you got lots of lots of people mentioning it in in the chat and stuff. And somebody was asking about if we're going to turn this into podcasts. Ah, oh, possibly. Just take the episodes and them without without video and make it into like a podcast format too that people can listen to um it looks like there's a lot of questions still popping in though but i guess if people want to just ask them in the comments we can start addressing them next time or something unless you guys sure. wanted to hop stay on later but i assume you're you're both ready to roll out yeah i gotta i gotta head out um i do have a big gaming day today Oh, yeah. Well, everybody, make sure to hit the like button and just share the video because remember, if we get to 1,000, I'm going to get a Salim's game design document made and we're going to share it with everybody. So we just got to get 1,000 likes to force no. them into it. No. And uh, <laughs> I don't know. Do you guys have anything you want to say before we head out? Um, no, I'm good. It's fun. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was fun, yeah. I, I, I'm definitely enjoying talking about this type of stuff. Um, so... Hopefully I'll be here next I, week. I'm endlessly surprised that we never run out of topics. I'm always afraid that at some stage there'll be something, but it's always some tangent and we'll we'll find something to talk about. Yeah, I, I think these calls could probably go on all day if if we didn't have uh, wives and responsibilities and things. <laughs> <laughs> just, just chat all day long. Monster Hunter Rise. Um, yeah, or video games. Final Fantasy XI again. Um, so I'm doing that. Plus, uh, I, I think unironically I'll actually try Monster Hunter after this call because I've never tried it. So. <laughs> oh, have you have you literally never played a monster? Never played it, yeah. Um, start with World. Yeah, definitely start with World. Well, I literally have World installed. It's on my list oh, of yeah, things yeah. to get around to. It's just, I, I now I might as well actually try it. I am actually curious. I, I would love to hear your insights next week on the control schemes and stuff like that. Because Monster Hunter has somewhat of a unique control scheme, but they nail it really well mm. within context of their game. Once you so, so do you recommend playing with keyboard and mouse or with a gamepad? A uh, gamepad. It's definitely more of a gamepad game. There is a, a a couple of ranged weapons in the game that before I went to PC, I struggled with a little bit there. I wasn't the best because it's an action-y game. And I thought once I went to PC, I would use mouse and keyboard. Um, but no, stuck with controller. Uh, feels really good. Um, but yeah, I'm very curious, um, your opinion as, as, a, as a Monster Hunter newbie. Um, how it feels. Well, well, now you have to come back for next week, then, so we can, yeah. we can discuss it. <laughs> we, will, we will discuss Darn that yeah, in the next call. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. Thanks again, right, everybody, man. for coming out. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and uh, share the video on Facebook and everywhere else. Um, and we'll see you again uh, next week.
Yep. Good luck, everyone. Fine. Bye, everybody.